I invite you to find a, po a comfortable posture. And I'll be giving a talk tonight, or I guess this afternoon, tonight in some time zones, maybe early morning for others. Maybe for most of us, it's late afternoon. And to respect the, the momentum of your practice and where we are in this retreat, I hope to be able to speak to the place you're at, which is uh, inviting yourself to a quiet, steady place. I know we don't end up there, but with that steady invitation, I hope the talk tonight supports the space that you're in. Is in the mode of meeting you where you are. So tonight I'm going to give a talk on uh, a topic called samadhi, which again is an old Indian word in the language of Pali. You can find it in other old uh, Indian languages like Sanskrit, this word samadhi. And so uh, tonight I'm going to talk about a few of these old words, these old Indian words. Um, and I'll give you their English equivalent, but you'll see that some of these English equivalents don't really do justice to the word they're trying to convey. And so we're in a bit of a we're in a bit of a lag time in English-speaking countries between uh, having some good translations to give us a start. So we can use what we already know to intuit our relationship to these practices. But you'll probably see that either you start to change the English word so it resonates with your meditative experience, or you start uh, learning a, a few of these Pali words and they begin to hold the experience that they're pointing towards, the meditative experience that they're pointing towards or other aspects of the path. So once you feel the experience of meditation, you might be able to map it onto these Pali words, but I'll also give the English words because uh, sometimes that takes time to get familiar with the Pali. So <clears throat> tonight's topic is on this word Samadhi, and you'll find it most often translated as concentration. And it was a good starter place to talk about what this word samadhi could be maybe a couple of decades ago, if not further back, when the word concentration started to be the word, the English word we reach it for when we talk about samadhi. But as I hope to uh, describe tonight, uh, samadhi is a much, it has more factors than just concentration. And I wish I had known that. Uh, even 10 years into my practice, I was still trying to concentrate my mind as uh, a very important part of the meditative practice. And it was actually in the second monastery that I stayed, the Pauk monastery, that I started learning about samadhi and its other qualities and why it's good to uh, develop samadhi in its whole sense, not just in its focused sense. So in some ways, because we can't find a good English word, which is interesting that we don't have an English word for what samadhi is, might tell us something about English culture or English-based culture. So <clears throat> samadhi, I'll try to give some examples and try to tune us into this word samadhi. And again, it gets translated as concentration. But samadhi is a flow of mind states. So you're going through life and you're experiencing a flow of experience. And inherent in that flow of experience, there is some stableness of your attention. So your attention isn't scattered. It isn't bouncing rapidly off different objects. You're not bewildered by experience because it's too many, too rapid. So there is this, um, beautiful alignment of your attention that it's it's beholding one thing and it's getting all of your mental attention so that part of samadhi 
does feel like concentration or does feel like focus. And that is a part of what we're practicing here in metta meditation is being choiceful about where we put our attention and then seeing if we can stabilize that choice or that direction of our mind. And then out of old habits, it scatters, it wanders, it bounces from topic to topic. So most of us have the experience of not samadhi, of a mind that isn't happy with any one thing, or it's very happy, but it keeps bouncing around and it just uh, skitters from one thing to another. That's a mind outside of concentration. That's a mind not in samadhi. And sometimes that's fun, like going to an amusement park, lots of stimulation, and your attention doesn't land anywhere. Anywhere it lands is fun, but it immediately goes somewhere else. But it's actually a very uh, weak state of mind because it's so agitated, even if it's pleasant, that unconcentrated mind eventually gets tired and eventually gets exhausted by trying to process so much information. And then you get the mind that's scattered, but it's not fun. It's scattered starts to be tired, it's restless, it can't stay with one thing, it's too tired, it's too restless. And unfortunately, that tends to be the, the outcome of our daily life when we're just living by the, the rules of daily life. Just try to pack in as much as you can to a day and accomplish as much as you can and taste as many things as you can, hear as many things as you can. And so you can get society in the sort of runaway train, which... The mind is not very concentrated, or at least the forces of the, our lifestyle does not help concentration. It's multitasking, multitasking very fast, and we get faster and faster at multitasking. And the outcome of that is a very haggard, exhausted, scattered mind. So then we drink coffee to try to focus our minds, or we go to libraries just to reduce the stimulation, or we try to go to places where our attention isn't so called upon, and that does help our mind uh, have this focus. And yet it is something that you can cultivate. And here in this retreat, it's one of the many things, whether you know it or not, you're cultivating. And it's one of the many benefits of doing a steady retreat like this is many, uh, many vegetables come out of the garden of a retreat. And so one of them is actually a, a heart-mind that is more aligned to do one simple thing at a time. It's more willing to do that, and it starts to enjoy that. It starts to take refuge in having one frame of reference, not a rigid frame of reference, but you're not having to attend 12 things, and you're really stressed about one thing, but you can't let go of another thing, and all of a sudden it's like a, a dog trying to grab three balls. It's got one ball, but it wants two balls, and so it tries to grab two, but it drops one. And it's always, it's always too many objects, and our minds feel kind of fragmented. And that can be the consequence of normal daily life, is having a mind that's trying to attend too many things. So we come on retreat, and one thing we're doing is learning to soothe that agitated mind and it might take a it may take some time for it to feel uh, like it's had enough rest so that it can emerge again and be available. Uh, most of us come in with an overextended mental emotional capacity, so we rest a little bit. The mind has habits of being variable, and then in most of our meditative. Uh, most of our meditative traditions here, our practices, we try to give the, our attention something very simple to do. And it turns out it's not easy because we have habits of scattering. But slowly we can start to develop the habit of doing one simple thing at a time. So then that becomes a little bit more the background of our mind. We have a little more strength to be focused. But one thing not contained in the word concentration is the amount of suffusive well-being that happens in samadhi. And it's a shame that we use the word concentration because uh, I now know meditative concentration is also an experience of feeling all the way through my heart, mind, and body deep contentment and well-being. 
but because we're we're in the world and we come to retreats the doing part of meditation is the focusing and so we're like okay i know what to do i'm going to do this i'm doing it wander bring it back wander bring it back okay i got my task i'm focusing i'm focusing and now we know to bring in early on rest and relaxation and ease because that is also the taste of samadhi this type of uh, unity where you're not fragmented not haggard not scattered not uh restless and so there is a kind of a settling the heart mind and body in some ways that aspect of samadhi grows to be more important than the focus side of it the focus side is very important and it does help us break out of habits it helps us study why we're confused so it's not that we outgrow it but it's the growing sense of well-being that's born within us that ends up helping to liberate us so everywhere you go it's sort of like a if you had a good friend who followed you around with a little uh water bottle you would never be thirsty again because you always had this little water bottle imagine if you had a water bottle okay a friend doesn't walk around you walk around and you have a magic water bottle and it always has the right amount of water in it when we start to actually have samadhi when we are doing one thing at a time but not the work version of that like the focusing workaholic focus your mind focus your mind that actually may not create much of this at home contented well rested part of samadhi so you can work hard on your attention bring it back from wandering and yet that approach might also be agitating and fatiguing so very important and we're learning this as a culture as a western culture we need as much permission and reminding to relax as much as possible relax 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 because our minds in daily life are habitually overextended tired scattered and exhausted so then in samadhi you have this focus it's nice because the mind is gathered it's collected it's not scattered so it has this focus but it has this well-being and when you're flowing along in this well-being and focus your mind you discover that your heart and your mind are actually more powerful than you realize because when you know your heart to be scattered you only know it as much as you could ever gather a tiny part of it but when you learn to rest in your body when your mind is a little bit more at home a little less scattered it takes a while but then there is this experience where the heart mind starts to feel rested not so tired not so out of balance and then your heart mind can actually engage with the world and when you give your attention to somebody it's a it's a lot of attention like it's steady it's resourced it's patient so often when you talk to people after meditation retreat if you've seen them when they had a lot of this samadhi you can just see that their eyes are fairly steady and if you have a conversation if you've come to pick somebody up off a retreat <laughs> and you're in a worldly mind and then you engage with somebody who's walking out of a retreat they'll look at you and they'll really hear what you're saying and you realize wow I, no one gives me this kind of attention maybe my therapist and maybe my parents unlike when we went on vacation but like what is this full steady uh attention and that actually is samadhi so again we can use this word concentration because it doesn't intone the well-being that is equally a part of samadhi um i've tended to stay away from it but um every now and then i'll try to use concentration because you know we're learning this we have to learn a foreign language to kind of get the right word for this flow so another example 
we're trying to capture what samadhi is, and I'll give a few. Um, if I were to take a huge uh, container of water and I were to turn it upside down and open at the bottom, the water would gurgle out. It would gush as air was going in, the water was splashing out, and as it went both directions, the air going in and the water coming out, it would be very splashy. So that's called turbulent flow in physics. There's a lot of turbulence, a lot of chaos in that motion. The water's trying to get out, the air's trying to get in, they're going in opposite directions. So we've all learned not to do that unless we're trying to spread water around chaotically. So now we don't turn things upside down and try to empty that. We turn the right side up and we start to pour. And there's a point where you start to pour and you get enough momentum going that you get a smooth stream coming out. And then you can pour a lot of volume out of a, out of a container. And that smooth, continual flow that's not gurgling and splashing, in physics, that's called laminar flow. So not only am I trying to use these ancient Indian words and in giving you physics concepts, but maybe you get a feeling for that, and hopefully the image. So you start to pour something, and then when too much comes out, it starts to gush again. And if too little comes out, it starts to dribble and drip. And so there is this balance point where you're pouring something out, where it goes into very beautiful flow. It's all, it, uh, it almost looks stable. Because it's in such beautiful flow, you can, you can find examples of laminar flow, like a, a waterfall that has this laminar flow. It just looks like a beautiful sheet coming off. And you can hardly see the dynamics of the water moving because it's all in this harmonious flow. So that's, uh, that's another experience of what samadhi is like, where you're flowing along, so you're not in a static state. Nothing's gotten rigid. But everything is uh, harmonized enough that you don't feel a lot of turbulence. So... Samadhi is a kind of emotional and mental laminar flow. So I, that might not work for a few of you, and it might work for some. But that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to pour our heart in the stream of experience. We're trying to get in that stream. And out of habit, there's a lot of chaos. And then very slowly and patiently, just keep returning back to the same harmonious intention, the same harmonious expression, loving kindness to myself, loving kindness to others, to both me and others. And then you get these moments where it stops feeling like work. It's not that you aren't intending it and curating it, but it starts to flow. And maybe it flows for three breaths, five breaths, and then it's back to turbulence. But we start to get these little windows that open and you feel more flow happening. Most of us aren't tracking this. And so it happens and we're unconsciously enjoying it. It's like, that's usually when we say, oh, I had this great sit. It's like, oh, what's great about it? It's like, I just, you know, things are flowing along. I could just do the practice, not so distracted. Like, okay, so you had some samadhi arise. Then you come back next day and like, ah, oh, terrible sits. Why were they terrible? Like, oh, it was all turbulent and cloudy and mucky. And so <clears throat> I, what we know about practice is that it, you're going to cycle between turbulent flow and laminar flow. You're going to come into conditions where samadhi is really felt and in that moment, you seem to have some momentum. There's a kind of a grace in the practice. It works a little easier, a little bit more intuitive. It's a little simpler. And you're in practice flow. And then it starts to get turbulent again. The, turbulent, the turbulence, when you're practicing with as much momentum as we are during this retreat, the turbulence is about purification. It's about an old habit arising. And then you can see, this is pretty natural habit, but I'm starting to feel the consequences of being turbulent, emotionally turbulent, psychologically turbulent. And I really like that flow state. 
So it helps, it doesn't help to cling to samadhi, but it helps if you understand it and what brings it about and how to cultivate it. So you don't get tomatoes by clinging to last year's tomatoes, but you're motivated by last year's tomatoes to plant this year's tomatoes. So previous samadhi, you can use it to say, okay, I can't just make it happen, but I know if I do the practice, it's one of the things that emerges. And what I'd like to talk a little bit about tonight is how to have that not be so accidental. And this is something the Buddha taught his students repeatedly. It's a very important factor of the eightfold path that Bonnie talked about last night. Samadhi is one of the folds. Mindfulness is one of the folds, and samadhi is one of the folds. So these are two things that we're cultivating in meditation. Presence and real-time awareness of mindfulness, and also trying to get into this flow state, this natural flow state. Not heavily manufactured, not through stress, but we're trying to invite the heart-mind to be simple, to be unified, to be gathered, and in a type of flow. One of the benefits is we're already flowing. So the cap is already off the jug and we're already flowing. We just have to work out the turbulence that's happening. So that's a, when you learn to notice samadhi when it's happening, notice it when it's not happening, really start to appreciate it and then learn okay, if I really want more of this flow state, I'm going to work on the conditions that support the flow state. And I'm going to guard against the conditions that tear apart my flow state. So flow brings so much health and well-being. And it's actually, it's sort of what we psychologically desperately need is less turbulent agitation inside that also leads to murky exhaustion and then a rebounding restlessness and scatteredness. So cultivating samadhi is important for our waking up process. And it also the outcome of samadhi is greater health and well-being in your body, your heart, and your mind. So it has its own place in our tradition. And it works well with mindfulness when there's a little more stable flow. We're not as bewildered. And then when we're mindful, it's supported by this flow state. And we can actually learn the things we need to learn through mindfulness. And we have a little bit more of this organic, natural flow state. So that's this word samadhi. And as soon as you find your own examples of it, and maybe you've touched them on retreat, maybe you're in a particular moment where you're experiencing more of that purification side of practice. And even though two and a half hours ago you had a beautiful flow state, because you've been in the turbulent state, none of this sounds intuitive. And you're already throwing up your hands saying like, well, I'll never have that flow state. I'll never have it. It won't happen to here. It won't happen to this mind. That's usually what a turbulent mind says. It can be so turbulent that it forgets the fact that it knows well-being states. It knows flow states. So if you've been turbulent for too long, sometimes we feel lost in the turbulence. And in that, we actually undermine our own self-assessment to know where there have been flow states. Another thing is that flow states, when they happen, they're less profound to the egoic mind. The egoic mind actually likes turbulent states, turbulent joy. It likes, it gets worried about turbulent pain. But sometimes you're in flow states, you're just gardening. You're just making a meal. And there's lots of contentment. It's a quiet moment of the day. What our egoic mind will do is like, this moment's okay. This moment's okay. Let's start remembering some really painful stuff and try to sort it out. Or let's plan for some pleasures ahead or worry about, I don't need to actually take stock of this moment. So one of the reasons that we're alienated from our own 
uh, homegrown samadhi, our own homegrown well-being, is that when we're well, the ordinary mind doesn't value it, and it goes to problem solve. That's the ego. That's the ego's journey. The ego's mission is to take care of problems, or to create resources. And so, often when we're in well-being, it's like you know going to a beautiful vacation spot that you've worked hard for. You sit down, take three breaths, and you whip out your phone and look at all the tragedy news that's happening. It's like I shouldn't look at my phone. Hey, kids, put away your phone. I also put away my phone. Like I don't know what to do with this. There's a lot of well-being here. What do you do with all this well-being? I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to look at my phone. Is that okay? So we have to check the fact that we do have flow states often, and because we haven't learned to value them, our mind gets caught in more trouble. So. In describing samadhi, you can start to notice it, and then once you get that click in between the concept and the experience, and it clicks a little bit, you're like, "Oh, this is a kind of samadhi." And if you have any Italian relatives or your you know, Italian culture yourself, you can actually say, "This is a lot of samadhi. I got samadhi." So sorry about that. I torture everybody with that, but I have. Italian culture in my background. So you want to look out for your own flow states. It's when you feel somewhat carried by a stream of experiences, so you can relax into them. You're not actually ravaged by competing concerns. You're not restless and exhausted. And so these wash over you, and you might be there the moment that you actually stop and smell the roses or the blooming flowers, or you actually take in the full moon or the new moon, or you stop and you you actually taste your tea and say,、like, "I like this cup of tea." If something simple is holding your attention, chances are the samadhi is homegrown. It's actually coming from you. If you see a beautiful sunset, it might hold your whole attention. But the sunset is doing most of the work; that it's profound. You so sometimes we create circumstances to hold our whole attention, but we want to actually have the samadhi arise from within us. And when samadhi is arising in us, very simple things are full of seem to be help us be very content. There's a lot of contentment with simple things, but it's not the thing. So I use this little striker to strike my bell. It's got some gold foil on it, a gold cloth on it, nice little wooden handle. On an ordinary day, it's just a striker. I don't think about it. When there's a lot of samadhi rising in my in my heart mind, I think it's a beautiful striker. I think it's really beautiful, really well made, and it is those things. But I'm thinking it's the striker. Or I think it's the lawnmower behind me is why I can't have samadhi, or it's the beautiful thing that I'm attending. When samadhi is arising in you, it's good to know it. Samadhi is arising in me, and one thing you'll notice is that simple things hold your attention. Simple things like the breath, or saying metta phrases, hold your attention. Actually tasting your food, and not with a lot of willpower. That's usually the sign that there's samadhi. Is that becomes a little less effortful to focus your attention. We teach this form of metta meditation for the importance of metta and the other brahma viharas. We also teach it because it is a samadhi practice. It's one of the The many practices in our tradition that is actually very good for cultivating the simplifying and the making whole our attention, and it's on a pleasant topic. So that also is helpful for our heart mind to relax. Dogs are agreeing with me. You can hear them in the background.、They're、very excited when I talk about samadhi. <laughs> 
Another confusing thing is that we'll know samadhi because of very special circumstances, like a vacation in a beautiful spot, or the honeymoon period of falling in love. You're you're so present for this being, or at this very particular restaurant where the ambiance is perfect and the food is delicious, or or going on meditation retreat. Not the first half of it, but maybe the middle and later half, there's more samadhi. And then we think that it's because of that circumstance, and therefore samadhi is trapped in those circumstances. You can actually find samadhi at home, and that's what you all are doing. In your home, in daily life practice, with this kind of lifestyle, you can feel your own samadhi growing. And that's a very important lesson to learn. Samadhi can become powerful when cultivated, but it also is fragile when we start to multitask. So multitasking is the number one way we start splitting our attention. So in home life, If you want a little more samadhi, the taste of samadhi in your everyday life, it's important that you try to streamline your day and that your day is not actually full of really things that compete for your attention and your attention has to be split between many things. So you're getting up routine, you're getting ready for the day, how you go about the day. When you work as we have been over the last few days, you're going to see that you have a little more of this samadhi momentum, a little more flow, not quite as scattered. Still times of scatteredness, like the wind does blow, but then the wind settles and you feel like, oh, this is one of the things I like about retreat. What I long for is this flow. You can do this at home in many small ways. One thing is, Do one thing at a time as much as possible with your whole attention. That's very conducive for samadhi. So when you make a cup of tea, try to just make that cup of tea. Don't make that cup of tea and try to read the news at the same time. So you're going to, so right, right there you run into the ego's dilemma. It wants the well-being of samadhi but it also is greedy for many things. And over time, you learn to say, I would rather have this samadhi than the taste of 10,000 things. You give yourself over to samadhi and you secretly get back the taste of 10,000 things because you're so present everywhere you go. It really has a lot of flavor. So it's a little bit of a zigzag. The mind wants 10,000 pleasures and fears 10,000 pains. So it scatters its attention. You come on a retreat, you renounce all these pleasures, all these ways that you soothe yourself. You learn to be soothed with simple things. And then you walk in the world and sunlight on flowers is beautiful. But you would have just walked right by it with a scattered mind. And so you actually get back all the joys of your senses, but you have to be careful to safeguard your samadhi and not start ping-bonging greedily between 10,000 things again. That's what will undermine your samadhi back in daily life. And you have to learn this over and over to learn. It actually behooves you, which is my other most favorite pun It behooves you, so it puts little hooves on you so you can get traction. It behooves you to value samadhi, not by clinging to it, but by cultivating it. Cultivating it so that it's a part of how your heart and mind look. Your lifestyle has to look a little bit more like samadhi. Not so much like retreat, walking slow, eating slow, but... You have to be careful about the speed, the stimulation, and the number of topics you're trying to attend. While that is difficult in daily life, 
with its complex work life and schedules. Again, once you have samadhi, you let go of 10,000 things, come into samadhi, you say, I'll never be able to function in the world. But then you walk into the world and you say, actually with samadhi, I do one thing and I do it well. I wrote one email. I don't have to rewrite it. I don't have to worry about it afterwards because I was present when I wrote it. I looked it over once and I sent it. Wow, when my whole attention is gathered, I actually get a lot done during the day and I'm not exhausted and scattered at the end. So then samadhi first takes some effort, but then it gives back everything that it took, it gives back, which is something you have to prove to yourself. Something you have to say, it is worth it. I cultivate samadhi, means I let go of certain scattering habits. My attention gets a little more whole, and then it's worth it. Because now when I talk to somebody, I really see them, whereas, rather than having my attention wander quickly or feel fatigued too quickly or running things in the back of your mind so you're not really listening much. So, wow, I really got to be there. I was, when I was with my sister's kids, I'm a proud uncle, kids of my own I really loved being with them after retreat and it motivated me to come on more retreat because I loved giving them my whole attention it was I don't have many things uh, to offer my nephews and nieces I'm not sure what I'm lacking but one thing I know I can I can really do is I can hold them in whole attention and they, they know that about me, and they trust that about me, and I value them. And luckily, I've transcended my nephews and nieces, and I like holding strangers with my whole attention. I like relating to the world through my whole attention. It's sweeter, it tastes better, I'm healthier because of it. But like going to a gym, you have to work the muscles that create samadhi. And you have to be careful of daily habits that have you abandon samadhi, which is, again, kind of greedy or fearful multitasking that will start agitating the mind and heart again. So if any of you are wondering, I don't know how I could do this back in daily life. I kind of in daily life because you're at home, which is one thing. You've already won how you could do it at home. But when the retreat is over, I really want you to take a radical experiment and to see what it's like to live and problem solve, not by going back to old restless habits, but from a heart that's imbued with samadhi. So when I first was going to retreats, I worked in homeless shelters. And I would walk in, and I'd usually leave the retreat multitasking. There's the phone, there's the logging of events, there's seven kids and I have to give them all good attention. They're all in various moods. I have all these responsibilities. So I'd go into retreat exhausted from multitasking. And then I would come in after the retreat. I was like, oh my God, I'll never be able to function in this homeless retreat because there's so many things to do. But I'm stuck in this post-retreat samadhi and luckily... I had to use it because I couldn't get back to multitasking. And I would look one kid in the eye and I would say hello and it would touch them. And I would answer the phone with my whole attention, take down, and I would do that task. And I was like, I'm actually doing a lot of tasks, but I'm doing them one at a time. And actually, I'm, I'm great. I'm great on the shift and I'm not tired afterwards. So I want you to have that... Um, that exploration, to trust Mahdi and to mistrust the fact this contemporary belief that you have to rev your engine at high speeds to cope with modern life. We're going to learn that's not true and Samadhi can be a part of that. So <clears throat> the factor is that support Samadhi they're called absorption factors or jhana factors. And just like there are four strings on the ukulele with the four Brahma Viharas, in the jhana factors, these absorption factors, these samadhi inducing factors, there are five. 
They need to be as balanced as the ukulele. I can't think of a five-string instrument. Oh, banjo. Ah, banjo has five strings. So you want to tune these five strings and not let one of them be too dominant and one of them be too lax. You want to play these five. And you have been playing them all along. So this, I'm going to give you new words, but you're going to hopefully see that this is actually what you've been doing all along. And by pointing it out, I'm actually going to put language to what you've already been doing. So one of the five, which is actually, I think, culturally where we need to start is with as much relaxation into tap into as much well-being as is already happening for you. So you take your seat meditation, you breathe a few times, you relax, you relax, you relax. And then you see you're inviting this factor, which we call in Pali, sukha, which is really happy contentedness. It's not the happiness that excites, it's the happiness that settles. It's slow rocking chair happiness. It's hot chocolate happiness. It's bedtime stories before bed happiness. It's waking up and realizing you don't have to go to school or work and you're settled, you're happy, you're content. You want to practice meditation in a way where you are allowing this factor to come. It's like a bar of soap. You can't grab it. If you try to grab it, it will shoot out of your hands. But like putting out bird seed and then the birds come, you want to practice in a way where happy contentedness can visit you. And once you learn to appreciate it, it's again, like maybe building a relationship to squirrels and wild birds, they know where the feeder is. By inviting happy contentedness, by honoring it, by seeing what helps you be happy and contented, doing one thing at a time, resting, coming back to your heart, mind, and body versus being scattered in thoughts, that constant permission brings about this sukha factor. Sukha has the same Indo-European root as our Germanic word, that became sugar, the S-U, sugar, sukkar, sukha. So sukha actually is just the, the relaxed sweetness. You want, you want to invite that into the style of how you practice. For me, that actually meant I had to do a lot more lying down practice because I was practicing more of the hardcore focusing practice. And once I learned to lie down, I had more homegrown sweetness. And then I thought, why does the sweetness disappear when I sit up? And I would sit up and it's like, oh, I take on this mind state. Lying down is where I get to relax. So once I sit up, there's things to do. Like, what if I sit up, but there's nothing to do? But breathe, hear sounds. So then I learned that sukha was an attitude. Sukha was a way of approaching life a little more relaxed, living life in second gear. And strangely enough, that's what my 20 years of illness of chronic fatigue taught me, is how to have sukha. And by God, I would not have figured that out as deeply without these Buddhist teachings and having a chronic illness that took away my addictive fifth gear living, trying to live 75 miles, passing other people, yes. I'm passing other people. I'm going faster than other people. I'm getting where I want to go. That must be the right speed in life. Buddhist meditation and being chronically ill showed me second gear. I was like, this is a sweet gear. You actually get to see the countryside you're driving through. I think it's maybe what we're most alienated from, which is why I'm going giving this factor its due and its time. Because cultivating a sweetness of attitude, a happy contentedness, discovering it accidentally, and then seeing you're more accident prone in Dharma practice. And then you can't put your finger, where is this happiness coming from? I'm eating roughly the same food as I've eaten before. Typical weather. 
but there's a well-being in me, and I don't know what it's about. Chances are, it's homegrown sukha, sukha coming from up within. When you have this factor and you know how to cultivate it, and you can see how practice helps cultivate it, it changes your relationship to your own life rather than happiness being outside things you have to obtain and then compete for others with. You have, you're like a turtle. You have your, your home with you. You have your happiness with you. And as that is more and more homegrown, then what is the world for? It's not to make you happy. You're already happy. Then the world is to dance in. The world is to serve if you come across suffering. It's to just hang out and be in awe of and wakeful equanimity. Or it's to delight in its majesty. But it takes all the weight off the external world that it's to make you happy. You actually have the fountain of happiness bubbling from within, the subtle, ever-present sukha, happiness bubbling from within. Then you can treat people and let them be as they are and not try to extract happiness out of the friendship, get them to behave slightly differently so you get to be happy. Like, I'm already happy. So what's my relationship to you? Well, it's not, it's less needy. It's more about I enjoy your company and I like walking with you. Until we get that actually worked out within, which is what awakening is, is opening our hearts so that they can be have this sukha within. It's great to get support from friends and it's great to need people. It's like needing people and getting happiness from the world is like training wheels to show us what happiness is. But we eventually want that to be homegrown. We want that to come within and these Dharma practices cultivate sukha within. That's one of the five factors. The next two factors are about focus. So the next two factors are to steer your attention and be intentional where you put your intention. That's another factor. The Pali word is vitaka. And we usually use the word aiming. So I could say, pick one person in these squares and turn your attention towards them and take two breaths, just aware of them. That's Vitaka. You just did it. There's this Buddha had a word for it. We don't necessarily have the word for that. So if your attention is roving and kind of shallowly making contact, that's not Vitaka. That's just half-hearted attention. Vitaka tries to grab as much of your attention as possible and make contact with Vitaka. So it's where somebody says, are you listening to me? And you go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And you weren't, but you're half listening. And the difference when you're actually tracking what somebody's saying. Now, sometimes Vitaka arises in us it doesn't take any effort. And we find like, wow, I just had really good attention. Sometimes we juice our vitaka with caffeine or we try to help our vitaka. We have a little bit homegrown and we try to help it. You can also put some doing into vitaka. And this is a factor that you can exercise like a muscle. Your attention starts to roam and wander. It's like, actually, we're not doing that now. I'm doing metaphrases. It's your roams and wanders. Now I'm doing compassion phrases. You do one thing and you commit yourself just in that moment. One breath, one metaphrase, whole heart. Again, whole heart. And then it decays and you start wandering again. It's like, okay, I got a little profound vataka. I could tell I was really intentional. Now my motivation weakened a little bit. My mind started wandering. So what I do, I renewed my vitaka. These phrases, I, I intend them. This is the direction of my intention. I'm getting my whole heart uh, aligned with being in my body, feeling my breath, opening to metta. This is a little bit like 
coming across a beaver dam that's blocking a stream and water is kind of gurgling through all the many little gaps. And then you practice meditation and you open one spot right in the middle and more of the water starts pouring out that one spot. Now you do some work to create a channel, but then you sit back and maybe something blocks the channel and you have to do a little more work. But at some point you've opened the channel up that the water starts pouring through that spot. So we're doing the work of aiming our attention but it can start to become second nature where it doesn't take as much work. And then you have this heart mind that's pointing in one direction through intention. And when that, when that is a little more second nature, you're not fighting the mind that's trying to do 10,000 things because your mind wants to stay in one direction, right where you put it. We're doing this now. Now we're doing this. You have to find a balanced relationship to that. You can be too willful and get angry with your mind. You can also be too passive and not engage your mind. And so you can have very floaty meditations that didn't feel like they engaged very much. Well, at least you're cultivating that sukha factor. But you want to be able to use the sukha factor to steer your mind from a place of well-being. I then aim my attention. Place of well-being, I aim my attention. If we get too much in the aiming, we get agitated. We don't. We lose the sukha. Too much of the sukha, we started like, ah, who cares if I'm aiming my mind? I'm so happy. It's not a bad thing. It's just not very stable with your attention, and it doesn't lead much to deepening samadhi. Once you aim your mind, there's a second factor called vichara, and we call that sustaining. Those two English words work well enough. Aiming and sustaining. Aiming and sustaining. So... I uh, won't do it in this talk, but if you were to pick somebody on the screen, turn your attention towards them, commit your heart to them, that's Vitaka. And then your mind wants to wander and you say, no, I'm actually being loyal to this one person. I'm going to sustain my attention with them. And I can feel pulls, but every time I feel a pull, I just stay steady in this one place. You can do these two willfully, aiming and sustaining, aiming and sustaining, but it is exhausting. You can have a lot of this content making, but it makes you a little bit sleepy. And so then the trick is to blend the two. I relax, see if I can find some of this inner contentedness. But before I go too sleepy, I also commit my attention to be steady and wakeful in one direction. So then you're blending these factors and you're starting to have the taste of samadhi. It has this well-being and this aiming of your attention and sustaining of your attention. So we have three factors and you can cultivate these in everyday life. A background sense, second care living, happy contentedness, focusing your attention on one thing at a time, and then safeguarding it so it doesn't wander into 10,000 topics. Please, one thing at a time, mine. No, this one email. I know, but this email made me think of this thing I wanted to do research on the web, so I'm just going to open the tab. I'll do it later. Oh, my God, look at all those links. I'll forget that these links are important. I'm going to open all those tabs. I really need a cup of coffee to track all this. So you've bit the hook of 10,000 things. And you're like, you know, I'm coming back to my original task. So you're actually already doing this in daily life a lot. Otherwise you'd be so scattered you couldn't even like walk through a door. You'd hit the door frame. Happy contentedness, aiming and sustaining your mind. These three factors of the five can become a baseline. And then the other two start to develop, from my experience, from these two. The next one is an alivening happiness. And it's a little more fickle my experience than the contentedness but there's a, this alivened happiness the old indian word poly word is pt pt and it doesn't have such a great english translation because there's pt down in the body feels like a lot of tingling feels like your body is naturally energetic so when there is sukha you're happy you're contented and then you get this PT, 
it's a really nice blend because the sukha without the PT is a happiness that leads towards drowsiness. So you want to get a little more pepperiness, a little more delight going. So you can invite this. You can invite the PT in the body to be a little more alive. But PT in the mind is a delighted, savoring, upbeat, happy mind. When you balance your PT and sukha, you have a really nice, it's part of what makes the deep well-being of samadhi experience because it's very alive. There's a lot of vitality. It's a mind that's happy to dance and adventure, but doesn't become ungrounded and scattered because of the settling factor of PT. And then you have these two containing factors of aiming and sustaining your mind. So I might be galloping a little bit fast here if you're Try, still trying to figure out what these things are. I'm showing you their blended model. If you go into your own organic moments of samadhi and you were to actually taste them, not just have it, you'd probably taste this mind has a type of aliveness. That's the PT. It has a happy contentedness. That's the sukha. And it's very stable in its attention and it doesn't mind sustaining in the task I give it. So you're already having this happen. You just maybe not have stopped to actually taste these factors. When we cultivate these specific factors and learn how to blend them, like tuning a banjo and then playing a chord, you can start to taste more of what samadhi is meant to be, what we call an English concentration. The fifth factor, which really is like a banjo string, like my hand, it's much shorter and it stands out takes longer to develop. And the fifth factor is called ekagata or ekagata. I can't remember which one it is. And what it means is one-pointedness. Now the pointedness distracted me when I was young because I thought I had to make my attention hyper-focused on a point. But it means you're only attending one thing at a time. You're only attending one thing at a time. So the way you support that is you say, I know the agitation that comes from attending 10,000 things. I heroically and with great surrender give myself over to one thing at a time. Vitaka aims at that one thing, but you want to have a heart that increasingly has more faith, more orientation, not to be seduced into 10,000 things, and then scattered by 10,000 things. But get the joy of one thing. Get the joy available in one warm cup of tea, holding the mug and sipping the tea. Give it your full attention. Sustain your attention. Invite contentedness. And then take interest. Isn't this interesting? a cup of tea and the, the notes of the herbs and the flavors, the warmth in the cup, the shape of the cup. Then you're playing banjo chords. So you put the ukulele down, you're playing banjo chords of samadhi. It's very funny to think about banjo and samadhi because banjo can be so fast. But you're strumming, a, you're strumming these five chords and that creates flow. That creates samadhi flow. You're doing one thing at a time and you're committed to that one thing. You aim your whole attention at that one thing. You sustain your attention at that one thing. You breathe and approach that task, one thing, aim, sustain. And you imbue that and taste the contentedness in something simple. And I find that when I can do those, I then marvel. I then marvel. And sometimes I have to awaken my own marveling. And each one of you will discover how you awaken your own marveling mind. I used to be a physicist and a biologist. And I can marvel at hearing or marvel at seeing or marvel that this animal is happy to endure me for 90 years plus, beats its heart, I, did, I chew the lettuce and it spreads it around the body. I don't do that. 
this body does that. I drink the tea, right? I drink the water. It hydrates the whole body and gets rid of the excess. I don't do that. It does that. So sometimes that's how I prime my PT, my, my delighted mind is a little contemplation. And I was like, wow, I was taking life for granted. I was really taking it for granted. It's marvelous. When I have that sort of homegrown marveling mind, I know that PT is flowing in me. So there are these five factors. You are practicing them. You might start to look at, am I practicing in a way that welcomes these five? Is one of the reasons I'm struggling with a certain session of meditation is that I'm not content with doing one thing. This mind wants to do seven things right now. Okay, that's an old habit of the mind. It's bored with one thing. That's a mind. Let me see if I can welcome it back. One thing, whole attention, sustaining the whole attention. Finding contentment in that, finding interest in that. These five factors. When you cultivate them, you'll find that samadhi visits you more often and it actually becomes more of your temperament to have a mind that likes being whole. You could do that with just breathing, but you have this really motivating, beautiful meditation subject of loving kindness to motivate you to be wholehearted, to give yourself over to loving yourself or chosen being. So it's a great place to practice samadhi. It's a great union, like the Reese's Peter Butter Cup of peanut butter and chocolate brought together. You have samadhi and metta brought together. Samadhi without the metta is for kind of neutral. Metta without the samadhi is scattered all over the place. Too many beings to love. Too many, it's crazy making. Oh, love beings with samadhi. Practice samadhi by loving beings. That's what we're doing. That's very beautiful. So let's just take a moment and let these words settle. If this was interesting, you don't have to hold on to it. Just grab a little piece of it that was interesting. You've already been practicing it, just trying to make it a little bit more explicit. But now we're going to go practice through the rest of the day. So let's steer back towards practice, which comes with a willingness to simplify the heart-mind. Take a few breaths, remember your body. Let your breath help gather your attention inside your body. And you might actually notice in this moment, you're in more flow than you might imagine. Your mind is always a little bit turbulent, unless it's very deeply absorbed, but see if you can enjoy what is flowing right now. Appreciate the flow. And then give that flow over to your practice. Loving-kindness phrases for beings, yourself, friends, and then even giving that kind of attention to people you don't know so well. And coming back to where it's easiest to develop this one frame, this one frame of attention. Invite yourself to do one thing at a time with your whole attention. Sustain your attention through that endeavor, meditation, making a meal, 
see if you can find contentment in doing one thing at a time. And see if you can find it interesting. If you can find the awe in that simpleness. You can try all five of these or simpler pairs of them. Or just do your practice as you've already done it. And these factors are embedded in how we've been practicing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.